This is Shaka Wartspeak. Hey, welcome to Shaka Wartspeak. We are back again, um, but we are back with one fewer person. One fewer, one less? One less. Um, missing one. Yeah. Person. Uh, and so if you can't tell right now, uh, I am here. Dr. Blackwell, Dr. Snacksmell, whoever. Yes. It's weird saying it myself without Ryan here to say it. Uh, we do have Code Red uh, kicking it with us as well. Present. Um, Ryan is is not here. Uh, we tried to get a hold of him. Um, he had mentioned some things uh, about a workshop that he was attending um, that he had to deal with. Uh, it said something about, like I don't know if he said screenwriting or screen printing. Hmm. Um, I don't. I don't really know. I thought it was writing for print. Oh well, then you got a different text than me, probably, because I'm not really sure either. But uh, all in all, he's doing something mm -hmm. uh, right now. But we'll figure out what's going on with him when he comes back, um, and how that all works out. Uh, hopefully, it's going well for him. Um, I know that he didn't really enjoy the drive to Utah, so it'll be interesting when he comes back. Yeah, uh, I was really curious as to why the um, first session of the seminar that he was going to start at 4:30 in the morning. Um, it seemed like they had some pretty creative ideas about how to like break you out of your normal boundaries of creativity. Oh, I just assumed that it was like a time zone thing. I thought it was like 4.30 Eastern. No, I'm pretty sure that they like kick it off really early and they're trying to like, okay. you know, in the fog of the bleary mind, the, okay. the print writing screening process yeah. becomes more authentic. Well, I mean, we'll find out. From in him, the salt I flats. I, I hope so because, uh, I mean, I know that part of the weirdness of it was, you know, the we, budgets aren't what they used to be. So I think some of the travel issues that came up with this um, were that there it was either they couldn't get a flight in close enough or the the uh, university wasn't able to pay for it. So he had to drive out. But, um, you know, he's uh, kind of back close to home as a as a Southern California kid. So. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see um, what it's like. Hopefully he's coming back with some stuff and we'll get a report from him next time we hear from him. But in the meantime, you do have me and Cody. So we're going to sit here. We're going to talk about some stuff. That's right. Uh, we're still in the soft skills series. Um, it's one of those things that we, it's not really a well that could run dry, I think, no. for the most part. Um, so we've talked about uh, communication and we spend a lot of time really uh, on a space in communication where we're dealing with like, you actually have to know real things like you mm -hmm. have to have an increase of knowledge uh, communication as a natural foundational human activity mm -hmm. uh, requires a lot of things from us and one of them is just to actually understand the world around you yeah. and know things and we're not going to deviate really that far from that uh, at least at the start of the conversation um, and so really this is going to be about uh, conflict management mm -hmm. um, you know it sounds like a very like HR word like yeah. a term where you're just like, oh, I've read that in a handbook or I've got Yeah, or emails. you get an email and you find out that there's an inconveniently timed uh, employee training about conflict management in the middle of a block of time that you had been preciously saving to get work done before a deadline. And or, now it's just blown up. Or it's a brown bag session where it's like, bring your lunch and let's talk about conflict management. No. And you're like, how would I bring my lunch and choke myself in the bathroom <laughs> and just not have to come to it? Um <laughs> None <laughs> of those things ever <laughs> happen in the corporate world, right? Yeah. Uh, I've had so, to do more meetings this year than I've ever had to do before, and it's it's an adjustment. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're fantastic things. Um, but we are going to go through some stuff with conflict management. Um, and I think really like uh, kind of a good place to sort of start. Um, well, actually, you know, Cody, you were mentioning some things before um, in terms of how you you thought this conversation kind of got couched, and we'll just let you let you start it off. Yeah, yeah. So um, a couple of things that we've been talking about together 
that I think is important is we did talk about the difference between wanting to have this conversation about conflict resolution versus conflict management. Mm. And I think that's important to touch on because conflict resolution is very optimistic. And I'm a pretty optimistic person. Yeah, yeah, you're very positive. But we recognize that sometimes you have conflict that isn't necessarily have a clear path to resolution. Mm. Um, or conflict resolution might be many weeks, many months, many years of working with people or in certain situations. Um, so in recognition of that, in order to help make this conversation a little bit more practical, we want to focus on conflict management because sometimes you really are in situations where you have to manage through conflict as sort of a steady part of your day, maybe without any clear end in sight. So we want to you know, see like, hey, what are some tools? What are some frameworks that you might go through that? Sure, resolution is definitely on the table, but also you know, I've experienced times where resolution wasn't really on the table. Um, that doesn't mean we have to chuck the possibility of managing the situation completely out the window. No, totally. I think that's good, right? Because we, we have phrases for this. We talk about things like, hey, we're going to agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. And that's a conflict management. That's not conflict resolution, right? The conflict is there. And in fact, I think one thing that the, the term conflict resolution is problematic for is that it assumes that conflict is a problem. Yes. And it makes it a negative. So it categorically lumps it onto the wrong side of the equation. Um, but conflict is actually really good. So if you look at our culture right now, one of the issues we have is that we have no concept of conflict management yeah. because we think it's only conflict resolution. It's exclusively negative. So conflict is bad. That means you have to agree with me or... I have to be made to agree with you in some sort of subservient way. Mm -hmm. um, but what we can't have is conflict. We can't disagree mm -hmm. because disagreement means that I've been invalidated as a person, which is a ridiculous concept at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of people who disagree with me. Sometimes those people are living in my own home that yeah. day, right? So it's not like there's, uh, there's no negation of my Sometimes personhood. Sometimes they're three feet tall. <laughs> sometimes they're a little bit taller. <laughs> That's right. And sometimes uh, they're me. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes they're me because there is this reality that there are times we are doing things that we don't necessarily agree with, um, that we don't necessarily like or want to do mm -hmm. in some ways. And not because we're compelled by other people, but because we are compelled by uh, self, which is sometimes uh, just a horrible bastard of a thing yes. to deal with. So um, I think that you know one of the things first out of the gate is, yes, we want to throw this idea of conflict resolution out the window because it's such a narrow margin of what mm -hmm. we're talking about. Um, but also because conflict is actually a pretty positive thing. Mm -hmm. Or has fact, the potential to be. It does, right. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of ways conflict is managed very poorly, yeah. right? So in the management is where conflict can either be good or bad. Um, you can do it well or you could do it poorly. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, this is a large conversation um, around my house and I would assume around yours as well. I know around Ryan's just because of the age of the kids we have. Yes. Um, and the fact that, you know, we we are living with another human uh, that we are married to, mm -hmm. and we are two different people. So at times, my wife and I are going to have arguments. We're going to have conflict. We're going to see parenting in different ways. We're going to want different things on the schedule, whatever it may be. And most of the time when those things are handled well, when we look at conflict and say this is a way we can come together mm -hmm. instead of a way to be driven apart, when we, looked at con when we look at conflict in the right way, what happens is we come to a really nice space yeah. where it's... Um, there's a little bit of give and take. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes 
it's less give, more take. Sometimes it's more give, less take. You know, it, it's yeah. how it goes. But we're able to actually lean into the conflict itself. Um, so I guess, you know, one of the things to kind of talk about in that space is where where is conflict most helpful? Like why would we want why would we want to not push conflict away? Why would we want to lean into conflict in certain places? That might be a good thing to just bat around for a few minutes. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, some of the things I'm thinking about right now is why does conflict even happen? Like what's the basis for it? And mm. so a couple of things that sort of, I'm just going to pull Orion and say, I'm just going to, throw out a few points in the constellation and we can see how they fall. Yeah. So we're finite beings. We mm -hmm. talked a lot last um, when we were talking about communication, about knowing um, and how we're in a constant state of send receive, mm -hmm. of constantly receiving from the world around us, which is communicating itself to us. And then we're responding to that. Um, in a lot of ways, communicating back to the world or just sending out communication for whatever thing is aware mm -hmm. to perceive it. But within that, within our knowing, we're finite. We don't know everything. We have limitations. And I think conflict comes out of um, two entities who are coming together with their own pools of knowledge and experience. And the Venn diagram overlap sometimes is bigger or smaller, yeah. which can create unity or opposition. Mm. So our finitude as beings, that's, that's on the table. Um, Another thing that we discussed during our communication episode was the fact that we're not always genuine in our communication. So there's a lot of ways that we posture, um, maybe have secret intentions behind stated intentions. Mm -hmm. um, there are ways that we think about the world in a very self-centered way um, and try to manage everything around us in a way that is to our own benefit first. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can talk about conflict management without acknowledging that disposition of the human heart in a lot of ways. And, you know, some people might have different frameworks for why they think selfishness or um, self-interestedness is a factor. You know, mm -hmm. you've got people who uh, take sort of a biological Darwinist approach and say, yeah, you know, selfishness is great. And, and um, that's just how humans work things out is everyone figuring out what's mutually best for the largest group. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mutual self-interest. Um, and, and, and you can think of it in that way. Um, and then there's other frameworks for thinking about why people seem to have an inherent drive to be self-focused or, or self-interested and why they would prioritize themselves over other people in such a way that conflict can then arise when you have that clash. Yeah. Um, so those are, those are the things that I was kind of, kind of mulling on, um, because I, I don't think that you can really work through conflict if you're not considering any one of those things. No, and it makes sense. I mean, because these are things, the reality that we're met with every day. So regardless of whether or not we like hearing those things, uh, we do live them mm -hmm. in our day-to-day -day life. So um, you woke up this morning um, and you immediately knew that you were not infinite because you were like, ugh, my back, yes. ugh, my knees. Oh, it's too early. Yes. I don't feel rested, right? There was, even in your physical experience, you understood that you were not an infinite being. Um, but then as soon as, you know, the first four or five questions got asked, something was an I don't know, or I'd have to find out. So mm -hmm. our, our finitude is always there on the table. It's yes. always in front of us. We know it. Um, it, it, it is a part of, uh, 
it is a part of the conversation we don't mm-hmm. like to utter, but is real. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also because we are privy to our internal dialogue, yeah. we also know the second part that you said, which is we are selfish, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, on, on mornings when I leave the house super early, it's always a little easier in some ways because I can get out the door only having done the things I needed to do. Yes. So, you know, I got my shower. I got cleaned up. I grabbed something on the way out. I left. I got coffee. And it was easy. And I would say, it's been a great morning. Of course it's been a great morning. <clears throat> I haven't had to deal with anybody but myself. Yes. I've only had to cater to my own desires. Yes. Um, so if I didn't want to get that thing for breakfast, I didn't have to. If I wanted to wear a different shirt, I could do that. If I wanted to get coffee from a different place, I could do that. Yeah. No one's telling you no. No big deal. But on the mornings when I wake up and I come downstairs and one of my beautiful children is already on the couch and the first thing they say is, Snack. Hey, yes. (laughs) Hey, Dad. Can I, can I, can I? Um, Then that's that's where the selfishness Mm -hmm. rears up because you're like, I don't want to. Mm -hmm. But I know I should. Right. And that, that's, that space, that friction between the, I don't want to, but I know I should, uh, that is selfishness Yeah, because that is selfishness sitting there whispering these things in your ears being like, Hey, you know what? You probably don't have to do that. It's okay. Just do what you want to do. Yeah. So those things are very real. I think they're very much there. Um, but I I think both of those are also going to be not just important to lay the framework for this conversation, but also to understand that they're probably two of the biggest poking points for how conflict arises yes. rises in the first mm-hmm. place. And I, I want to put out there, I don't think the finitude problem, I don't think that's a problem. Mm. So I don't want to assign positive or, I mean, I'm not assigning positive or negative value to the fact that we're finite. I just think that's how we are. Yeah. And so that's why I think we can have a conversation about conflict management and understand that there are times when the conflict that's going on isn't negative in the interpersonal way or doesn't have to be negative in the way that we think of it because even if we were all perfect people you know potentially Mm -hmm. we're we would still be finite people and therefore there would still be times when we would come together and that knowledge and experience overlap could cause chafing and Mm -hmm. then it would be up to us to work through it and if we were perfect people, we'd work through it really great and it'd be beautiful and come wonderful resolutions. Yeah. But there would potentially be a moment of some sort of conflict. Yeah. Um, so it's the like the finitude and then the selfishness and how they can compound each other. And then I think it's helpful to talk about conflict management to separate those out and say some of these things are controllables potentially, some of the things are not. Um, but we're not saying, you know, the best, best resolution to... Um, conflict management is to be a perfect being with all knowledge. Um, <laughs> yeah. There might be access to perfect beings with all knowledge in certain ways. We can talk about other times, but I don't think any of us individually are going to get there. Um, so for the sake of making this a helpful conversation, we won't assume that's a possibility to become that type of being. Yeah, I think it's probably, I mean, if that's where the conversation, there, there's other podcasts for that. You can go listen to them. Nobody else is, but you can go listen to those. Um, where you can have uh, that conversation about how you can become enlightened, perfect beings. That's not for us, right? What we like to talk about is how can you be the busted, broken beings <laughs> that you are and how can we do maybe this a little bit better and have a better life uh, coming together yes. uh, to work with each other uh, in the strengths and weaknesses that we we all have in a really great community way. But I think, you know, uh, even just to put a bow kind of on the introductory part of this, uh, I was just looking up, you know, in, in good uh, dork fashion, uh, I was looking up the yeah, etymology, etymology online. Of I love that website. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, it's always helpful to see how this thing's been used, right? So, you know, we're um, 
looking at the early 15th century, you know, 1640s, some uh, good mentions, but more or less uh, the whole idea of it um, is you have the idea of fighting together or being in opposition together, right? So when we think of other ways that conflict is used, we think of things like, oh, world, the World War II conflict, mm. right? And the idea is not necessarily that there was two sides of the army or yes. two sides of the war with different armies, but it was that there was an army and there were people that were together in yes. this opposition. And so I really like uh, having that um, because one thing that, um, you know, I got a, a group of friends I talk to very regularly, like every week, um, and we talk about a lot of things that have to do with life. And one thing that uh, I've kind of harped on uh, in conversations is that uh, usually we are not struggling with each other. We are struggling, or we're not struggling against each other, rather. We're struggling with each other, mm. um, which is a nice way to think about it. So if we come into a space, and like let, let's say that you and I had different viewpoints on this this morning. Like uh, maybe art history. Yeah, like maybe a subject like art history. Like you and I can have a conversation about that, mm -hmm. and we could be on different sides of it. Because what we're trying to do is not, punk each other down yes. or be jerks. But what we're trying to do is actually come to a different understanding. Mm -hmm. And so what we can do is we can have that struggle together with differing viewpoints. When it becomes problematic is when I say, Cody, because of your ideas, you are now an enemy. Yes. And that might sound to you like, oh, that, that's extreme. Nobody does that. It's like, yeah, you do. Like, just get on, get on Instagram for five mm -hmm. minutes. Read the news for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then tell me that you haven't just made somebody an enemy in your mind. Yes. Um, this is how conflict tends to be. So if we can reframe kind of the concept of conflict into a, I don't know, a more positive understanding. Mm -hmm. Not that conflict has to be a positive thing. There can be just downright terrible conflicts. Absolutely. And they can still be for good reason. Um, but if we can get to a place where we start to understand that within a workspace, within a career space, within an interpersonal family, school, job, whatever space it is, um, that conflict is something where we struggle with people, not mm -hmm. necessarily against them. Um, I think that can be a good headspace to kind of launch us into. Um, and I think one of the things that really struck me this morning, uh, Cody, is the way that you've brought a few things in from, I mean, the hundred plus podcast episodes and the hundreds of hours of conversation offline that we've all been a part of. Um, but you brought in some things that kind of work towards that kind of more holistic space for understanding that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just to double click on what you just said real quick, because there's a lot that I like. Um, I think everyone would agree if you look at the world, we have a thought that there's an ideal world that's not the world we live in, that there's some gap between the actual world that we live in and how the world ought to be. And so one positive thing about conflict is like conflict is sometimes the process to close that gap. You know, things actually have to change to get from whatever problems that are in the world that we're in to the world that we want to be. A lot yeah. of people have different visions about where that conflict occurs, what that ideal world looks like. But just in that sense, I think if, if we can agree on that, like where we are and where we want to go, I think everyone could hopefully agree that or see the fact that conflict is part of actually that resolution of getting where we're going. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, there really is like positive reasons for conflict right. to exist. Um, so I really like that. 
Um, yeah, so I just thought um, in, in the spirit of uh, desiring Ryan to be with us, but knowing that he's off doing very important uh, research uh, and development. Yeah, we already poured one out for you, homie. There's yeah. a giant coffee stain on the floor now. Yeah, um, uh, really looking at that shot of espresso and having some regrets, but you know, <laughs> it's for you, Ryan. Um, we wanted to just touch back on some of the core ideas of, of the podcast and of, of Shaco. Um, so I wanted to talk about conflict in terms of uh, the idea that ideally we should have nothing to produce, nothing to prove and nothing to protect. Mm. It's a phrase that we've dropped a lot, um, sometimes sort of very casually in passing. Other episodes we've, we've talked about it a little bit more. It's become sort of like a motto amongst a lot of uh, our friends. And so if we understand that conflict a lot of times has to do with we either have something to prove to the world or someone else. And that desire to prove something is usually a um, insecurity with our own identity or how we understand ourselves mm -hmm. or our place in the world. And therefore we feel like we've got to prove something yeah. in order to re-anchor our identity, possibly know something about ourselves or ensure that other people know something about us. So that's the nothing to prove part and then nothing protect a lot of times we we feel vulnerable we were talking about being a finite being means that you find yourself in vulnerable positions and without any sort of buffer or assurance outside of yourself then we all tend to find ourselves in our personal relationships and our work um even just literally going outside into the world of like yeah. i feel vulnerable and therefore i need to build up these barriers to protect myself and to insulate myself from what I perceive could harm me. Mm -hmm. With those two things operative, if we've got something to prove and we've got something to protect, and then you have multiple individual parties or you have multiple social groups mm. yeah, yeah. all doing that together, that's just a minefield for conflict. Yeah, Because then everyone's constantly trying to negotiate their own individual things they're trying to prove, which usually is at the expense of someone else, mm -hmm. um, or trying to keep themselves from being harmed, which creates a relational distance, lack of vulnerability, lack of willingness to come together and actually work through things in an honest and genuine way. Because usually if you've got something to protect, you will find yourself prone to either dishonesty or just not, not speaking or not engaging at all. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so... That was one of the, the big things that I thought about, like conflict management, is how do we think of that? How do we become the type of people who have nothing to prove and nothing to protect? So there is a possibility of a genuine human connection with another person so that we can start working through any conflict we're having. Yeah, the, so the, the first time that nothing to prove, nothing to protect got dropped into a conversation, um, there was a part of me that was just like, uh-huh. And now, you know, it's just like, this is a, this is a cool little phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, very pithy. Yeah. Very easy to sort of like, oh, that'd be a nice bumper sticker. Yeah. It, it, it'd be real easy for someone to be like, what a, what a, what a nice platitude. Mm -hmm. um, but the more that it's kind of rubbed against me um, in real life and it's popped back into my brain in situations, the more I realize like, no, it actually is a very, it's a very necessary and worthwhile um, sentiment statement. Um, I think the, the thing that um, is difficult about it is that there's like there's nobody that can hide from it. There's no nobody who's like, oh, I'm not like that mm -hmm. because we're all like that in our own certain ways. Yeah. 
Um, and it becomes problematic because when I, the, the, the image that resonates most with me and the nothing to prove, nothing to protect, um, it really is like, and it maybe just, I have a soft spot in my heart for this, but, um, it really is like, I just see like these rescue dogs. Oh. <laughs> I mean, like in all honesty, like, um, like we, we have a couple rescue dogs. We, we love dogs. Uh, if we had property and means, uh, I'm sure my wife would have like 50 of them. Yeah. Um, and we would, we would be like just a crazy house of dog people. Yeah. Um, but when I think about it, like, you, you look at the way that, um, like rescue dogs, like how, how they have certain temperaments, mm-hmm. right? And you can see the dog that has something to prove and the dog who has something to protect. Yes. And they have very different ways of communicating that, right? So uh, you might have like the rescue dog who like as soon as you step in the cage with it, they are just like in your lap. They're on you. They're shaking their tail. They can't stop touching you. And mm-hmm. they're just like, no, I'm good. I'm okay. Everything's no, all right. Please approve of me. Please approve. Please approve. Um, and there's, that comes from a real place, right? Mm-hmm. It comes from a real place with like some probably hard stuff that happened. Yeah. Um, but then when you have the dog that's trying to protect, like, you know, you don't even get near the cage and they're lashing out, they're barking, they're jumping up on it, they're burying their teeth, they're mm-hmm. doing whatever they need to. Um, and the interesting thing is, um, those dogs get that way because it was a few different activities, but not, it's not a wide range of them, right? It is neglect. Mm-hmm. Um, it is abuse. Um, it is also, um, the, uh, the aggressive side of dogs usually comes from dogs who are in proximity, but not in relationship to Mm -hmm. other animals. Yeah. I remember you mentioning in a previous conversation how, um, uh, dog fighters would put dogs in spaces where they would almost be able to have contact with each other but not quite yeah and so that would just build up that tension that tension that tension until they would let them go Um, and if you start taking those sort of ideas and saying oh let's put that into a human Mm -hmm. uh community relationship sort of standpoint um we actually do have a large part of our culture that is based off of being in proximity but not in relationship to other humans right so you were probably laying in your bed this morning and did some of that you know, scrolling through, looking at stuff, being proximal but not relational mm-hmm. to these people. Um, you know, and sometimes you could argue uh, it enables relationships. Maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not that we're not that different than some of these like rescue dogs mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, right? We all have our broken little bits, and there's parts of us that you know maybe we'll say are, like malformed, like. But whatever conversation we put that into, it always comes back. We are not perfect beings. Mm-hmm. We are finite. Um, we are selfish, so we're personally driven and we're limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we get into those conversations, uh, we we have to kind of understand first of all, I think, within a space of conflict management, we kind of understand like what's our bent, mm-hmm. what's Absolutely. our space, um, and so that's the question with the nothing to prove, nothing to protect that I've been going through the last few months is like, which one am I more prone to? Yes, am I more prone to prove or protect? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think in different situations, we'll find ourselves possibly doing yes. either or. or. Um, and depending on situations, because um, you could think you might map proving with aggressive and protecting with passive. Mm. And sometimes you find people who in situations, they got to do both. So then you get passive aggressive. Yeah. Um, just to sort of slip a card on the table. Um, because we live in a time where 
humans are equated with animals and animals are equated with humans in mm-hmm. certain ways um, that might be problematic. Um, I do think that they're, the biggest difference between us and maybe the rescue dog is that we have a type of agency as human beings that the rescue yes. dog doesn't. So the rescue dog uh, might be subject to its environment maybe in a deterministic way mm-hmm. that I think humans... I think we're prone to believe we are, but we are not in reality. Yes. So I think we absolutely are historical beings that, you know, we talk about that sending, receiving, Mm -hmm. like we absolutely receive the experiences that we have and the relationships. You know, a lot of people grow up in difficult homes, um, just tragic, difficult circumstances. And that really does form and shape our tendencies to prove and protect. Right. But there's another layer of us being humans. That's our volitional agency and how we respond to that. Mm And so the kernel of that in us and our dispositions to respond well or respond poorly yeah. uh, is, is always at play. Um, yes, and I think you know, for anybody that might be listening and saying, "Well, hey, hey, I, you know, I don't, I don't have that kind of agency. Like, you don't understand. It's mm-hmm. different for me. We do have that kind of agency. Uh, it might be difficult." Um, but we have that agency. So, I mean, even just, you know, the story that Ryan shared over and over again, like, uh, that he's talked about, you know, he had a moment in time where he knew he had to leave Southern California. Mm-hmm. That was not an easy thing. Yeah. Right. And, uh, we've all been in those situations. Um, you know, he and I were talking about some, some bad experiences and you were, you were probably to the conversation over this past weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, some, the most experiences where you learn a lot of things yeah. in life, um, but there are those moments you kind of wake up on the floor, sometimes literally, and say, oh, this is not the way anymore. Yeah. This cannot be how this works. Now, that's not easy because it means there's a lot of like fixing, moving on, reshaping, learning, growing, all of those things that are difficult. But the agency is there. I don't have to be a deterministic person. Mm-hmm. I don't have to sit here and say, oh, I've made bad choices. Therefore, my life is set in stone. Yes. Or uh, my parents made bad choices. And my life is set in stone. Right. Um, there's a lot we can't get over. Um, like you said, we are historical beings. Mm-hmm. We are born into a certain culture within mm-hmm. a certain time, and we do have bounds in the way that our finitude mm-hmm. works within the world we are in right now. But we also are hugely impactful beings. Yeah. I mean, we went to the freaking moon. Yeah. Uh, not a small task. All right, we went to the freaking moon with less power than is in my watch. Yes, less computing power. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, so, you know, let's so not tangent s- on that one because that one frustrates me. Um, <laughs> well, all that to say, uh, there's no, there's no reason that we should sit there and be like, well, you know, I've been like this for a few years. Yeah. I guess I'm just going to die like this too. We don't have to be in that space. Yeah. And I think if anyone's listening and maybe is frustrated, you, you do have to ask yourself what everyone has to sort of wrestle with is there anything that in- can intervene in my circumstances to change how I might respond to something? Or am I just the result of the historical developmental forces of all matter from the beginning of time until now? Um, and that's a I super think, hopeful statement. I just, <laughs> that, that statement just strikes me as so, so sad. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's really something to wrestle through because I think it it's a tension that if we don't acknowledge it, then it could... Um, what I don't want us to be talking about is seeming flippant about people's difficulties um, right. or having an overly optimistic sense that we can fix ourselves and some sort of like bootstrap it up, Oh yeah, you, yeah. you know, power positive thinking like, yeah, life is tough, but like your will can triumph. Then the question is, 
what can intervene in the historical circumstances in a way that actually has power maybe beyond ourselves individually Mm -hmm. that can start producing changes in freedom? And how do we access that power or the person who has that power? Right. Um, You know, always revisit our episodes on free will. No, we think about that. Uh, We talk a lot about agency and, um, you know, the, the boundaries of that. But, you know, that's just a question that we'll have to set on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where does the capability for change in the midst of the real historical determining circumstances come from? I don't think it comes from ourselves, but I also think it's out there. Yeah, I mean, if we're if we are finite and if we do act in self-interest, then both of those things would provide a large, correctly assumptive space to say it probably ain't us. Yeah, um, which is fine. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Nobody. Um, Nobody says that a pitcher is a terrible thing because they may not be able to hit well in baseball, yeah. right? They still do what they do well, um, and it is not up to, up to them to be the entire team. Um, so, you know, the metaphor breaks down in some ways, but mm-hmm. it's still uh, still the concept is there. Um, so I think, all right, so we're in, we're in conflict management. We've kind of put some space out there yeah. and said, here's how we understand this. It's not just resolution. Why do we have conflict? Why might it arise, right? So all this stuff that we're talking about is, you know, as individuals, we have this. Mm-hmm. Well, now these individuals come together in groups mm-hmm. to achieve ends that they may not care about. Like, so, you know, in a corporate sense, you might be like, I don't really care what my business does. I just need the paycheck. Yeah. Or they might have their own interests, yeah. like in the space of like, um, maybe like art practice yeah. where you're making art and the gallerist is just like, well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or the gallerist is looking for you to do this and you're like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So we take all these things that can be difficult as individuals and we put us all into a gigantic room called the world. And we shake the box up. Mm-hmm. And then take our bicycle pump and pressurize <laughs> it a little bit. Yeah. And, and then, oh, weird conflict happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we approach conflict, um, you know, if we kind of understand ourselves a bit more. Mm-hmm. So if we have in some ways self-diagnosed via the nothing to prove, nothing to protect, mm-hmm. and we understand how we operate, um, then things can be a little easier. So mm-hmm. what I would say is uh, we have the two like kind of axiomatic things that um, you you are uh, hinting at, Cody, is like, the nothing to prove, nothing to protect seems to speak more towards me as an individual. Absolutely. I can understand who I am and how that makes me react in the world to mm-hmm. things. And I can be on my guard about that. But then we have a second one that you mentioned before we started recording, which was the know and be known. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, the interesting thing about that is this does involve self. But when I think about know and be known, it deals with people outside of me much more. It demands it. It demands it. Right. Because I can't know and be known in a vacuum by myself. Mm-hmm. I can, in a sense, understand nothing to prove, nothing to protect, just on my own. Yes. Um, because I have my actions, I have my internal dialogue. Mm-hmm. So with know and be known, like what, what kind of stands out to you? Like why would this be an important thing that we want to actually talk about during conflict management? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think know and be known maps onto nothing to, pertu- nothing to prove and nothing to protect because when we are focused on proving something, we tend to be focused on ourselves, not focused on others. And mm-hmm. one of the one of the nodes of conflict management that we had um, talked about prior to recording was the idea of empathy, um, which is necessarily the ability to not just imaginatively engage with another. Mm-hmm. 
um, and and say, okay, let me make every effort to identify, um, not in a way of like trying to become another person, but really say like, how do I put myself in their shoes? How do I try to see this from their perspective? How do I, um, as much as possible as a finite being that can't mind meld with another human, like yeah. really try to consider the direction they're coming from. How do I know this person? Mm-hmm. Knowing, as we kind of talked about um, in various different times, like there has to be an other to know. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so that gets us out of the proving, because proving tends to be making sure other people know a certain thing about me. Whereas when I'm focusing on knowing, I'm making sure I know something about another person. Mm-hmm. So I, my identity, my goals take a backseat to an engagement with another person. Yeah. Um, and then being known has a lot to do with the nothing to protect. Because a lot of times what we're trying to protect is our fears and our sense of some type of deficiency or weakness about ourselves. Mm. And so as part of trying to prove something like, well, I'm proving I'm this type of person and I can't afford you to know that I'm actually not that type of person and maybe also have these three other major glaring weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So I got to shield and hide that, distract you with what I'm trying to prove over here. And there's no opportunity for another person to really know me Mm -hmm. um, in a meaningful way that puts me in a place of vulnerability, but also opens up the possibility for honesty and really working together. Um, and it's clearing some of that smoke so then whatever particular problem of conflict can be dealt with, honestly. Um, so that's where I think the, the know and be known really come in and become that counter. Um, and it does take, it's both a active and passive thing because you have to actively try to know Mm-hmm. And you have to actively make yourself able to be known, mm-hmm. but you can't force the other person to know you. Right. So it, it does take two. Um, and some of the difficulty is sometimes you find yourself in a position where, like, you might be really striving for that know and be known. The other person may really not be. They may still be totally in mm-hmm. prove and protect mode. And a certain type of conflict can arise from that as oh, well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, you, you brought up uh, a word that has been looming large on the cultural stage for about a decade or so now, um, which is empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we talk a lot about it in my job. Oh, I, oh, yeah. I mean, within any sort of corporate space, uh, and, and I include um, public universities in corporate space as well, mm-hmm. um, take that how you will. Um, I think empathy is one of those things that's it's definitely in the forefront. Um, but also the, the fact that the conversation around empathy has increased in volume mm-hmm. so much in the last 10 years, I think says a lot about your first point about finitude and self-interest, mm-hmm. um, that we have to talk about these things because they are not, empathy is not a natural response within a group of people who are self-focused. Yes. Um, it's actually antithetical. Yes. Um, you have the classic joke of like, how many times did something have to fail in order for you to put up a sign that says, don't do this thing? <laughs> And so it's like if we have a million signs about how to be empathetic in Mm -hmm. our society and in our conversation, you have to ask yourself, well, how often must people be completely failing to be empathetic if we have to put up so many constant reminders? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mean, the one of the sort of mantras around the house when I was a kid is I just I just remember and even to this day, my Mm -hmm. mom still tells me the same thing, which is like, Gareth, be nice. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and a lot of that deals with empathy, right? It's like kindness is 
is the assumption of another person. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the assumption that you don't, you're not that other person, and you don't know what that person is going through in the yes. moment, um, right? So the the idea of kindness or niceness um, like deals with that. But I think that there are some ways that empathy has been really maligned and mm-hmm. badly portrayed. Um, one space is that you know. Uh, empathetic space within a conversation of like deep cultural intersectionality mm-hmm. is hugely problematic because what what this conversation uh, purports is that you actually can't be empathetic because you haven't experienced all the things I have, so yes. you actually can't know anything. So sit down and shut up. Yeah. So C point one about finitude and self interest. Hyper individualism will really put a uh, block to even our ability to conceive that empathy is possible. If yeah. we really think that each of us are operating out of such a unique experience that there are no bridges. Right. Um, and that really, I mean, when you when you double down hard on that idea that all of our experiences are so individualized that there really is no hope of sharing, then that's where you do get into a space where our relationships can't be anything else than power struggles. Yeah, um, And there are people who, who construct their whole understanding of, of what human relationships and social relationships are out of that idea that everything is just power struggles. Um, and that's a way of not acknowledging our common ontology, not yes. acknowledging that there is something to what it means to be human that we all share. Mm-hmm. And there's something to this reality that we live in that is consistent to all people who are living in it because reality just is what it is. Right. Um, and if we can bet on that, if we can bet on a common ontology and a common reality, well, there really is a possibility of empathy. Yeah, and it's great because um, if, if we can assume those things, then what we're already doing is we're already priming the conversation for conflict management in a much better way because we're assuming, okay, there's there, this commonality actually lets us, if, if we have a common ontology and we have a common reality, then this means we actually could get to a common place as yes, well. Yes, common solution. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of things that can be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, within the conversation of empathy, one of the metaphors that's used a lot is somebody's walking through the woods and they see a hole in the ground. Somebody's in the hole and they can't get out. Sympathy says, oh, it sucks, you're in the hole. That's unfortunate. Empathy says, let me crawl in the hole and help you out. I think the metaphor is wrong because the thing I don't want in a hole that I'm trapped in is another person trapped in that hole. Yeah, because they're going to eat me. (laughs) I mean, seriously, two people stuck in a hole, unless a third person comes along with a rope or ladder, like you got very limited range of outcomes. Yes. That just wasn't it. Wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> uh, that's good. Yeah. So eventually, it will turn into a what like Argentinian football team or whatever uh, oh, sort of man. situation. Um, but uh, outside of that, yeah, the person in the hole doesn't help me. Right. Yes. Like the fact that you are having a commiserate experience, and therefore we can talk about it on a certain level. Like it only gets me so far. Yes. While I may appreciate it, and I may find those spaces where I'm happy to find find community, mm-hmm. talking about things that are unique to me or unique to a smaller group. Um, one thing I always have to assume, though, is that I don't necessarily, I don't want to be in that hole mm-hmm. or I don't want to live there forever. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's times that the hole is nice, but not now. Yeah. So I don't want somebody walking by if I'm stuck in that hole going, oh man, that sucks. Yeah. But I also don't want somebody standing right next to me going like, hey, actually, this sucks in. for both of us. <laughs> um, yeah. 
What I'd like is I'd like for somebody to be there who says, hey, I understand the direness of the situation or, you know, how unhelpful it is. Um, and I am not in it, but there are ways that I can help or communicate in whatever small way mm -hmm. as a reciprocal relationship, mm -hmm. not as a, like you're talking about, not a power struggle where I'm sitting here telling you and domineering, mm -hmm. uh, but in a way where it's like, I actually don't know the fullness of it. But if I know part of it, that means that with uh, our shared ontology, with our shared reality as a human, like we can probably figure something out together. Yeah. And I'd rather be figuring out my problems together than trying to guess at solutions on my own. Yeah. And and because it's a two-way street, you know, I in my professional environment, a lot of times we have conversations about empathy and communication with the assumption that the other party is not going to change, does mm -hmm. not have any of the context or um, notions about good communication. They're not necessarily, we're not assuming that the other person's going to meet us halfway. So there, there's a difference in your ability to navigate some of the situations. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, I might have an interaction with a person where it's very much a, they're in the hole and I have an opportunity to be sympathetic and walk by, be empathetic and engage and it's not helpful for me to dive into that hole because then I've eviscerated any ability to help them. And mm -hmm. so if it's an empathy situation where it is more of like a one person in the hole, one person out of the hole, then really the empathy is going to be empowered by what I can actually do for that person. Yeah, The empathy and all the ways that I might be able to emotionally relate and put myself in their shoes and all of that, that ends up being good only insofar as I also can do something to resolve the problem. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of what I've done in my, my um, professional life is you have conversations with people, they have a problem, and I'm expressing empathy to get them to a place where they know that I can help them. Mm. And then what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to try to help them because what? I have the you know, access to the systems and the knowledge of the scenario that I can take ownership of the problem and mm -hmm. then create a solution and then inform you know my customer of what that solution is and they're mm -hmm. like wow not only do i feel cared for as a person but you've resolved my business need that's yeah. great um the flip side is that in a lot of the times you know the need to cooperatively exercise empathy towards the other something that everyone needs to do to everyone else so it's more like you come up and you've got a per you're dying of thirst mm -hmm. and you come upon a person who's stuck in the hole with a huge case of water mm -hmm. and then you both are like hmm Hey, throw me that water. And then the other person's like, no, 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 no. Throw me that ladder first and I'll give you the water. <laughs> and you have to cooperatively be empathetic and work out a mutual solution because mm -hmm. both of you are in a place of need. Both of you actually need to empathize with the other. And it's not just a one-way street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, throughout like kind of philosophical history, we've we've dealt with this idea, um, not necessarily in the emotive space where mm -hmm. empathy tends to live a lot of the times, <clears throat> but within the the intellectual space with the idea of the dialectic, right? Yeah. So you have the opposing views or different sides. Um, so you bring your, your own individual assertions to the table and then through dialogue and discussion, you come to a commonality, mm -hmm. some sort of understanding. Um, and I think maybe in the most <clears throat> caustic sense, uh, dialectics have been prescribed as a way to, to that if we're both coming. Yeah, we're, we're both stupid. We're going to bring our dumb ideas and somehow together we're going to achieve enlightenment mm -hmm. as a middle ground that eviscerates but contains both yeah. ideas into one, um, which I think is a bad a bad way to think about it. I think more of it is is really just the way that 
conversation happens, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and the way that um, we can come to a mutual understanding for things. Um, I mean, if you, if you look at the philosophical space, like a, a, a pure dialectic conversation uh, is kind of a, a mediation, mm-hmm. right? It is, it is if you had somebody sit down, if you had a really bad fight with a friend and a third friend stepped in and said, hey, let me, let me help you all reach a common ground. Like yeah. That's kind of the dialectic space. So we have this, we have this idea, mm-hmm. right? It just seems that uh, right now the conversation of empathy is much more about an emotive space. Yes. I have to feel that you can give me something before we can have a conversation about what we actually are doing here. Yes. Um, and, and which, it, which is fair um, in one sense, mm-hmm. but also can kind of put the cart in front of the horse mm-hmm. in some ways where it's like, if I'm stuck in a hole, I don't have to feel I don't have to feel like you know what's going on to be rescued. Yes. You know, like I think about that, that, what was it, that like soccer team that got caught in a cave? Do you remember that? Like, a, um, like the boys' back? soccer yeah. team that the, they climbed in the cave and then the water flooded yes. back up and they got stuck. Yeah. You know, like on one hand, I don't care if you like me, period. Get me out of the damn cave. Yes. You know, like I'm not, not trying to check whether or not my rescue diver's personality <laughs> test matches me. <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah, uh, is your Myers-Briggs compatible with mine? Otherwise, mm-hmm. I think I'm good here. Um, yeah, so so I think that if you go for like some extreme cultural cases, there's yes. some problems in the space, but it's good to also remember that like the idea of empathy is, uh, it's it's not that different than the whole, you know, like we were taught, you know, what's that golden rule? Do unto others exactly. as you want them to do unto you. Like it's actually understanding it's really the other not a person. Yeah. It's not new at all. Mm-hmm. And the other person's a real person with mm-hmm. real ideas and thoughts. Um, and if we live in a culture that is constantly dehumanizing people, it yes. makes sense, like you said earlier, that we would have to constantly focus on empathy to rehumanize them. Yes. Um, if we have a tendency to either treat people like animals or machines. Yes. Um, which we have to be honest, there are ways that like animals don't conflict management no, the way we're talking about. They, they fight. They bite you they, or they leave. They fight and they establish a hierarchy of dominance and mm-hmm. then that's, that's that. Yeah. So... You can either treat people like animals, and I think it's fair to say that there's probably a lot of scenarios where people, maybe with best intentions, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, ultimately that's their conflict management resolution. Is just whatever you got to do to establish a hierarchy as quickly as possible, and then that stands until someone slips up and someone new can can take alpha. Yeah, I mean, my best job ever was the first time I, I walked into this uh, courthouse I worked out on the first day, they just stuck us all in an octagon and they said the top five people get to keep their jobs unless yeah. you just go home bloodied. And they threw in four pencils and, you know, yep. a golf ball. Yeah, and it was just like, let's go, this is it. But in all seriousness, like, you don't want that. No. You, you don't want, you don't actually want that. We don't, we don't want to solve conflict like animals and we no. don't want... Even though we do. Even though we do. Um, and we also don't want to solve conflict like machines. Which is just okay. Give me the numbers. You know, you know. We're gonna just to work with your job metaphor. Like we're gonna hire six people, and mm-hmm. we're just going to have a real brute force metric system. Mm-hmm. And after the first six weeks, two people are getting fired, exclusively based off of mm-hmm. you know uh, efficiency metrics. That's right. Um, we we would be like, mm, uh, that doesn't sound good. Or you know, potentially even um, oh, there's conflict. Um, we're going to parse out uh, a few categories that define you and mm-hmm. then just determine who's right and who's wrong based yeah. on a real brute force sort of sorting method. Mm. Um, and, and that type of 
mechanization doesn't sit well with us either. No, it doesn't. I think it's one of the reasons why uh, so many people have decried uh, public education for the last 20 to 25 years is that we introduced that brute force mechanism mm-hmm. um, with a lot of the testing structures and whatnot. And not that testing is bad no. or problematic, um, but when it is given the volume yeah. um, and importance mm-hmm. that it was given, you know, uh, no child left behind, um, it becomes hard, it becomes yeah. difficult because it becomes the thing that everything rests on. So it does become mechanistic mm-hmm. in that way where it's like, oh, you're just machines. We measure you on metrics. Um, we can judge what your trajectory in life is. We can mm-hmm. say whether or not you're worth it, yeah. whether or not we value what you think or do or are enough. And so it does become problematic. But yeah, if we're, if we're in a space where we're dealing with people as either animals or machines, uh, it's hard. The only way that we can not do that is to deal with them as humans. Yes. And so we have to be within the space of are we humanizing or dehumanizing? If I'm understanding myself and my natural reactions as an individual, mm-hmm. the way that I, Gareth, interact in certain situations and what I tend to do as a gut reflex, then that can be humanizing. Mm-hmm. If I can understand myself to the, to the level of saying, this is how I tend to react and it is not necessarily positive for the people that that reaction happens with. Yeah. Um, that allows me to subvert some of my own dehumanization I can do to myself and then impact others with. Mm-hmm. If I can then turn around and say, oh, other people have a shared ontology and reality. Mm-hmm. Which so is they're, probably they're subject to a lot of the similar flaws that we are. Exactly. So they're not coming into this necessarily having it all together. Mm-hmm. They're not coming into it with all the pieces and all the stuff. Or so, even neutral. So I can assume that they got they got their own problems that they deal with, mm-hmm. but also that I can actually be an agent of problems for them. Yes. So um, if we can understand the things that we tend to do and then the way that we tend to inflict those upon other people and we can understand that our situation is not unique, mm-hmm. that everyone's in the same space, this is not going to stop conflict. Yes. But what it will do is it will get us into a good space where we can understand what it looks like to move through that conflict or to live in it well. Um, so you might be wondering, it's like, hey guys, you're like 45 minutes into this whole thing and you're just now at the point where we've <laughs> entered conflict? Yes. And it's like, yeah, because um, like I tell my students in any class I've ever taught, the majority of the work, like a lot of things work on the 80-20 rule. Mm-hmm. Um, so majority of your creative work 80% of it will be before you really like start making any visible marks. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of thought and research and conversation and everything else. Mm-hmm. So I think it's from the same sort of space. We've the foundation of conflict management is well before yeah. the conflict happens. Because when when an individual an isolated incident of conflict occurs Without any of the background framework that we've talked about, and some people maybe have experienced this, and then other people, you know, it's worth acknowledging, some people just kind of default yeah. into a lot of the ideas that we've already talked about. So mm-hmm. you know, some people may personally be like, well, I'm, I'm just really good at conflict management. Like I find myself, points of conflict will come up and I've just got ways of sort of negotiating that space and it always seems to work out well. And I just haven't really thought about this a lot because I just seem to like be able to work through it. You Great. might be intuitively working through a lot of the things that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if um, you can do that, then more power to you. 100%. Um, but this might add an extra layer of your ability to maybe walk other people through how to resolve the conflict in a way that you intuitively do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, for listeners for whom a lot of these ideas might be new, 
hopefully these give handholds. Because if you're just in a space where you're having conflict with another person and you think it's about a particular business move or a conflict between your vision for your art practice versus maybe your your gallerist or your dealer's vision for what your art practice should be, mm-hmm. um, or you and your spouse are just having conflict about like, should we buy an SUV or a minivan? Yeah. Um, I think my experience is that it's easy to find yourself endlessly frustrated and having no points of resolution for the specificity of whatever sparked the event of conflict because none of these priors are on the table to be worked through. And then once all the priors on the table have the space to be worked through, um, which I acknowledge that not every relationship is such that you can't have this type of conversation before talking about whether or not to buy the Vinnie Man or the SUV. Oh, yeah. But if it's on your radar, then there's a possibility that you can at least make whatever attempts you can to work through it. So that way those are not clouding whatever the individual conflict point or decision point is. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think when when I think about the conflict itself and when that point arises, um, like you said, there's not always the chance that you're going to be able to kind of like time out, Okay, let's let's diagnose this. Let's have this. a two-hour conversation about shared ontology. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen, right? Um, so there are times where it just comes up. Yeah, you've got conflict, workplace, road rage, whatever, mm-hmm. and you can't. You just have to deal with it in the moment. Um, I think there's a conversation uh, that's good to kind of understand, like a lot of our knee-jerk reactions. So if we go into uh, the comment you made earlier about um, that we are kind of self-driven folks Mm -hmm. that we impose ourselves on the world very heavily. Um, and we have that desire to preserve and protect Mm -hmm. those things. Then I think there has to be a conversation about, um, what are we primed by? Like how do those knee jerk reactions happen? Mm -hmm. So some of them are just self-based, right? So we've, we've grown up and we know how we react. Mm -hmm. We've been kind of indoctrinated through our continued habitual responses Mm -hmm. to react a certain way. Um, but also we live in a society that has never experienced beforehand uh, the amount of visual information yes. about conflict, right? So every every horribly scripted, dramatic, gross reality garbage that yes. you watch that is based on having people fight mm-hmm. to keep people engaged um, has primed you for how to deal with uh, situations. Every like keyboard courage jockey out there who has made garbage comments on Reddit or Instagram or whatever and attacked people has primed you for how you will react in situations. Because all this is a cultural conversation that's in the back of your head. Mm-hmm. So while you may be fighting with a lot of that preserve, protect um, sort of stuff, um, you're also, you're also formed and shaped you are. by all these media experiences and these narrative experiences that is being modeled for us. Yeah. Um, in contemporary society. And when it comes down to it, like you may, you may like watch a video on YouTube of people with road rage and somebody, you know, brake checking a semi driver and then the semi driver just rolling through their car and go, mm-hmm. yeah, they should have gotten, they got what they deserved. Yeah. But the reality of the situation is like, we are not such strong creatures that we can withstand a consistent barrage of this information and not be affected by it. Yeah. So at some point, if I were to watch those sort of videos, um, like road rage videos every day mm-hmm. and was just getting a cathartic experience, it is going to become more and more likely that that is the way I will deal with conflict when yeah. it arises. You will seek to find that cathartic experience in your own life through the methods that you've been um, in proxy receiving that cathartic experience through those media. Yes. 
And so items. with something like that, you're engaging with a concept and not a person, mm-hmm. which means you are ultimately dehumanizing those situations. Yeah. Um, you're ignoring the humanity of the person in front of you and just saying it's experiential reality. Mm-hmm. What's um, more important right now is for me to have a type of catharsis by expressing my rage or my frustration than considering the actual human that might be the source of the event that is causing that rage and frustration, mm-hmm. but they are an actual human. Right. And we have to grapple with their value and their experiences and every, the complexity of another person. Or we can not, or we can just flatten them and make them as flat as an image of a person pixelated on a YouTube screen in mm-hmm. Russia taking an ax to someone else's car. Yeah. Um, yeah, 100%. And the, the, the thing that becomes very hard with that is when that's going on, now you are not, um, you're not working well within the nothing to prove, nothing to protect because you are seeking out an experience by which you are protecting or proving. Mm-hmm. And again, that's hard because it's understandable. We have emotions. We yeah. are beings that on first level are reactionary. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, but we have conflict like shouldn't be that. Core And another element of this is like a however well or poorly calibrated sense of justice. And so there's something about conflict yeah. and justice or conflict in the sense that there's something that's been wronged or uh, set out of whack that needs to be realigned in order for justice um, or the right way of things being in the world to be restored. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know we see, you know, it's common like narrative theory to talk about the, the importance of conflict in a narrative yeah. to drive a narrative. Like every story has some conflict mm-hmm. and then the catharsis of the story is seeing the resolution of the conflict. Yes. Um, some separating and then a story of how the things that were separated now come together and join in unity again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because we're so individualized and because we lack a common view of the world and we are mostly driven by our own personal wants and needs, we tend to fall into a place of feeling like we need to be the judge and the jury and the executioner oh, yeah. of our own individual vision of what justice is. Mm-hmm. And if we follow with sort of the premise that we are struggling with some type of selfishness, a lot of times our sense of justice is what has wronged me mm-hmm. and how I can make restitution to get back what I need. Yeah, um, I mean, it's those first two points, right? We are finite and we are self-driven. Yeah. And so our ideas of justice will be in that same space and those ideas are going to color the way that we deal mm-hmm. with conflict. <coughs> Excuse me. I think the interesting thing, you, you brought up the idea of narrative and conflict and narrative. And it is uh, the the thing that always stands out is we think that, um, you know, within a justice space that my personal narrative is the most important ever because we forget the shared ontology. We forget that we are share, we do share humanity, even if we don't have 100% overlap in experience. Mm-hmm. Which might mean we have a shared morality. But we'll yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, and, and and I think that if we look at a larger cultural lens, we'll see that there is more of a shared morality than not um, if we zoom out to the right scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that kind of proves this point is, uh, you know, I don't know if you're a, a Kurt Vonnegut fan at all. Um, he's not always... Fahrenheit 451? No, he uh, no. Uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. Ah. 
the other number. Yes. <laughs> so he um, he is an acquired taste at times because uh, his his writing is not the easiest. It's very postmodern in a sense, but um, he applied to graduate school. Um, I think it may have been like University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And when he applied, they're like, "Oh, what's your project?" And he said, "Well, I want to I want to map out the shape of stories." And they're like, "What do you mean, Kurt?" <laughs> and he's like, "Well, I think there's only eight stories that the world has ever told." And they're like, nope, we don't want you. <laughs> so they told him no. So he goes on to be a prolific writer and just like world renowned. Yeah. But he gives a presentation on the shape of stories. And it is wonderful because he talks about things like the man in the hole story, mm-hmm. which is a guy's in a bad situation. It's really rough. He's got to get himself out of a hole. We know this story. This mm-hmm. story has been told forever. You have uh, the Cinderella story, mm-hmm. right? Somebody... Uh, who uh, is in a really bad spot but doesn't know how good they actually have it. They find out some things, it gets taken away, and then they reclaim it. Mm-hmm. So these, so he goes through his eight shapes Achieve, of stories. Achieve, loss, reachieve. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and what it points to is it does point to a lot of the stuff we're talking about, but it also pushes against an individual need to resolve or have justice in a specific way that's only to you, mm-hmm. right? Um, because... At the end of the day, if I am to achieve some sense of justice in my life, I live in a world that is in such a way that that doesn't not include you, Cody. Yeah. Like there is there is a reality to the fact that justice is something that deals with everyone, mm-hmm. um, which means as we dial that down into conflict – that conflict is something that I can't just be the one that gets appeased. Yes. If it's between the two of us, there has to be something. The conflict is never resolved until we are both at peace with what's going on there. Yes. Now, this is one of the reasons, again, we wanted to talk about conflict management because there are people in my life that I will never be appeased with, but that doesn't mean that there won't be some appeasement at the end of all things. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think one of the kind of the, the sort of last pivot, I guess, is like, all right, so we've we've outlined conflict mm-hmm. and how we kind of get into it, why it's there, what we bring to the table, how we screw up things mm-hmm. and how we think about it wrongly. Uh, we've also talked a little bit about what conflict is and how it can kind of function. Now, how the heck do we deal with it? How do we how we mm. how do we live in it? How do we get out of it? How do we approach it? Um, how do we how do we ask for help? I mean, mm. any of those things. So I think really just as the closing section of this episode, we can just kind of bat around some of those the, some of those ideas. They could be experience based or they yeah. could just be thought based. Yeah. Mm. So I tend to be conflict averse personally in the sense that I don't like open conflict and I will avoid events of open conflict. Um, this is a good conversation because I'm the exact opposite. Yeah. I, <laughs> I thought. Um, and so for me, conflict management has looked a couple ways. Um, that means that sometimes I don't deal with things head on the way I should. Usually because I have something to protect. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm afraid of what could happen if I just try to get some yeah, stuff yeah. out in the open and deal with it. Um, and that leads to bitterness. Uh, because then I've got some sense that um, there's an injustice that's occurred against me. I don't feel empowered to try to start working towards whatever resolution of that injustice I feel is. And so that sense of being owed something that I'm not getting mm. creates bitterness. And so it makes it easy for me to just sit on bitterness for a long time. And then on the outward, 
not really bring it up and so appear relatively flexible and relatively okay, you know, Cody's gonna be fine. Oh yeah. Um so that's just that's just, you know, personal failings. Just you're just, air, air you're that just out burning underneath. Um yeah. <laughs> so in situations, you know, professionally where where I've had conflict with another person that seemed mostly driven just by like actual maybe personality differences and not yeah. necessarily a particular problem, though always flared up by like little problems. It would just go, of course, just daily business. Yeah. You know, oh, I need to do this for me because like this is kind of your role to do these types of things and it's mm-hmm. my role to ask for these types of things so I can do other things. Um, then it was helpful to have a third party, um, you know, a, a manager mm. that I could just be yeah, like, yeah. hey, this is, this is actually what I'm dealing with. I'm frustrated about the situation. I don't know what's going on with this other person and why they're snippy at me in this way. Mm-hmm. But it's causing me to be snippy back at them in this way. Um, but it's all this sort of like passive aggressive underlying. And so just having that third party to be like, hey, um, you know, a little bit of like, this isn't r- totally about you. So like, Mm-hmm. Kind of get out of your own head. Stop being selfish. Yeah, yeah. We've we've got a job to do, and so we need to focus on that mutual goal that we all share, which mm-hmm. is in this case, it was the success of the company and the ability to to take care of the the customers um, and make sure their needs were being met. Um, and it was a medical uh, environment, so taking care of customers also had a lot to do with like their mm-hmm. health, yeah, and, yeah. and their stability. Got so, some stakes there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was helpful. That's helpful because the realignment of like, okay, we might, I might be having this snippy interaction with my coworker over a few months, but I need to realign my priorities, mm-hmm. decenter the vision from just me and me feeling wronged, focus back on like what the big picture is, mm-hmm. and yeah. then have a person who acknowledges that maybe things aren't right, and I can touch base with and just say, hey, I just need to let you know, I'm having trouble today. Um, and they can be like, yeah, I get that. I want to support you, but we also need to focus on this job. Yeah, and so yeah. in that sense, it was we were managing, you know, that that third person was helping me manage a conflict I was having. Um, that didn't have like an overtly clear, let's sit down and have a conversation for two hours and we're gonna emerge gloriously united, you know, <laughs> yeah. yada, yada, yada. Um, the nature of this the business just didn't even afford that sort of space. Yeah. And then funnily enough, another thing that I tried to do um, was to focus less on my frustration and actually focus more on doing everything that I could to be available to help this person Mm. that was annoying me as much as I possibly could. So like if they needed something and I was able to do it, I would try to just jump on that Mm. Um, as a way of helping recalibrate my own perception of them. So that way I wasn't thinking of them as an antagonist, but I was thinking of someone as a, a, a co-worker that I was here to support mm-hmm. in the way they supported me in other ways in my yeah. job roles. And lo and behold, after a little while, um, and some other just like shifts in the business, I think that actually really ended up helping. And so without really ever having some sort of... Um, explicit conversation where we, you know, joined hands and sang kumbaya, me and this mm. other person. Yeah. There was a point where there was a pivot and there just stopped being any conflict. Mm. And and I was able to ask this person for things that I needed and they were happy to help me and they were mm. able to ask me and I was happy to help them. Um, that and that it just reminds works. me of the conversation we had with, uh, with Sam 
about hospitality and mm. hospitality being uh, assuming another person mm. in the space that you occupy, um, and then uh, forming uh, forming uh, location specific, yeah. forming a space where they can exist as themselves. Yeah. And I think that's you know it's, it it's not it's not foreign to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, it really is like if if I am knowing myself and I am knowing other people, if I do understand there's nothing to prove and prove and nothing to protect. <laughs> If all that stuff is there and checking out, then what I can do is I can say, oh, these, this person acts this certain way mm -hmm. and it grates on me. Yes. But that doesn't mean it that they're, they're not necessarily doing it because it grates on me. Mm -hmm. I think that's the that's the irrational jump mm -hmm. that we make where it's like, you do that thing and you do it because you know I don't mm -hmm. like it. No, most people don't act in any way where they remotely care about you. Mm -hmm. They're just doing their thing. They are the dog in the cage just yeah. barking at the world. And they have no desire to care about you or to even think that that's on their radar. So most of the time when we make it personal, mm -hmm. it becomes hugely problematic because it's never personal for the most part. Yeah. So the funny thing is, I agree that is the case. A lot of times it isn't. It, in this particular situation I was describing, it kind of was. And it can um, be, yeah, yeah. And it still worked out. And I think mm -hmm. that's important too because, you know, ultimately what I probably just said not very succinctly is I had to find ways of decentering. Mm -hmm. everything from being about me. Yeah. Um, which I recognize is not something that I do well or, and uh, you know, I don't want anyone to think I'm trying to position myself as some type of saint who does that in every way. It's a struggle, really hard, really difficult. Um, but in that particular situation, I found a way to decenter it from being about myself mm -hmm. and focus on what I could do for the other person. Um, you know, someone really wise once said, love your enemies as yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and a soft word turns away wrath. Yeah. And you can you can say that's really optimistic, but I don't think the world works that way. Um, I've experienced the world working that way. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of other reasons why it works that way um, than just sort of a, a tit for tat, you know, here's an easy technique. Well, and I, even back to like, you know, we talked about like the, the golden rule sort of thing, mm -hmm. doing to others as you have them doing to you. Like the golden rule works when it's not just you doing it. Yes. You know, and that's that's the point um, of something like that. So even the, you know, the kind word, like helping to not make other people mad, yeah. like that's real, mm -hmm. right? But it, 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 it assumes the community, it assumes relationship, mm -hmm. it assumes that we're with people and that we give a damn. Yeah. The problem happens when folks say things like, oh, well, isn't that such a nice wor world that you kind of believe exists? And mm -hmm. it's like, actually, you're you're impacting this by enforcing the problem. Yes. By saying, oh, I'm not going to be that person. Somebody yeah. else is going to have to be it. It's yes. like, okay, well, welcome to the problem. You found it. That goes back to the agency question. Is yes. Like, the thing about conflict management is prior to your demand about what anyone else does for you, mm -hmm you have to own what responsibility you have in the relationship and you have to have something that is motivating you and potentially something that is actually empowering you outside of yourself mm -hmm. to take whatever agency you have and start being the person who does to others what you'd have them to do mm -hmm. before anyone else is doing that to you. Yeah. Because if everyone's saying, no, everyone else has to make the first move, we're at an impasse. We're back at the man yeah. who's dying of thirst and the man who's stuck in the hole with the water. Mm -hmm. And both are demanding that that the other person moves first yeah. as a way of protecting. Mm -hmm. But when you're at the point where you're like, 
I'm going to help you out of the hole. And I actually don't know if you're going to give me the water. Yeah. Um, and you might actually be strong enough that in my weak state of thirst, I might help you out of this hole and then you might overpower me and be able to get out of there without the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but if nothing, if no one engages, we're both going to die. Yeah. So like we all have the responsibility to make those first steps and then kind of see how the cards fall and work out that conflict management step by step going forward. Yeah, I mean, we've been tiptoeing around it, but you know, a, a lot of this really is dealing in a space of like as, assuming or having the agency to push forward with or or faking it till you make it with mm-hmm. something called humility. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we there can be times that things like humility are really um, like hyper spiritualized um, within the art world, where it's like you know I I present myself as humble to these materials and mm-hmm. this process in order to uh, make a thing in which I am a servant to the object. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is that uh, you just understand the original points yes. of finitude and self serving. Mm-hmm. Um, if I understand those things and I understand that I'm not unique because I have a shared ontology and a shared reality. If I understand all that, then what I can do is I can come forward and I can be like, hey, <laughs> we're all kind of in the same broken boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, that means that I can actually sort of put some things on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also listen to you instead of listen to the situation mm-hmm. or listen to the reaction. I, th- there's ways where I can I can say that whatever, you know, in a situation where I might be like, whatever Cody is saying or dealing with right now, like, that isn't necessarily Cody as yeah. a real person at his core. It could be a lot of proving, a lot of protecting. It could yeah. be a lot of different things. Um, but if I can bring a humble space, I'm like, I don't, I don't have it all. Mm-hmm. But I can, I can move into the right space in the right direction, and I can kind of humbly, humbly serve the larger community mm-hmm. in that respect. Um, then we can get into a better spot with conflict. Yeah. And I think that touches on maybe a soft skill that we can talk about in the future, which is ultimately leadership. Mm. Um, yeah, because that's a misunderstood one too. Conflict management requires leadership. It does. Some party in the if if the conflict is going to be managed well, and if it's the sort of conflict that can actually be resolved, um, at some point someone has to take leadership and be the one to start walking and initiating the steps to find that well-managed resolution. Um, yeah, I think that's huge. So maybe that's a, a good place to wrap it up or give final thoughts and then sort of point towards a future yeah. conversation we could have. Yeah, I think the the last the last point I want to make is one thing that I found very helpful um, in conflict management is if there's a person that you're in a, in a long-term relationship with, and mm-hmm. I don't just mean like a spouse or a friend, but I mean somebody you work with, yeah. maybe it's a, a mentor-mentee relationship, whatever it is, um, one of the things that's very helpful uh, with conflict management is to have the conversation about conflict when conflict is not there. Absolutely. Um, to understand, and and we can't do this if we're the type of people we mentioned in the beginning who are just like, conflict is terrible and mm-hmm. bad, and it would, avoiding it and is we just success. want to ignore and pretend it doesn't exist until we're confronted with it. Right. Because if we can actually assume conflict is a natural part of life like we outlined before and it doesn't have to be a bad thing and conflict can actually produce a lot of nice things i mean if you think about the idea of like a seed right the idea of a seed growing breaking through its shell busting out of the earth imposing its agency upon the natural surroundings like there's conflict in all of that 
And what it's doing is it's producing life, it's producing abundance, it's mm -hmm. producing a lot of beautiful things. So if we can have the conversation before the emotions are there, yes. before a lot of things are laid on. And so I've talked to a lot of couples about this, mm -hmm. um, you know, friends that are just like, hey, uh, you know, dude, we've been friends for a long time. I'm having this issue. You got any, <laughs> you got any input? Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, it's like, have the conversation beforehand. Yeah. And just talk about this. Because if you care about somebody, you should want to know about how they deal with things. And then to be able to have a situation where you're screaming at each other and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm -hmm. Are we talking about a thing or are we upset about something else? Yeah. Like, what are we doing here? Absolutely. You know, so we, my wife and I, we employ, we employ whatever dumb tactics we need to keep as much peace in the home and as mm -hmm. much clear communication mm -hmm. between each other and love as we can. Um, you know, so that might be one of those things where it's like, you know, you might have like something like a safe word almost yeah. where you're just like, or to have something like this. I mean, this morning before I left the house, I leaned over and I kissed my wife and I said, Hey, I know when I get in a funk, I tend to de-engage and disengage from mm -hmm. things. And I know that that means that I'm there, but I'm not always present. Yeah. And I was like, that was yesterday. And my wife has known me long enough and we've had conversations enough where she looked at me and she said, it's okay, I forgive you. Mm -hmm. Um, but also she wasn't screaming at me yesterday to like be present and to do things because it would have disengaged me further. And she yep. knew that. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's understanding each other as adults, mm -hmm. as humans with agency and allowing people to work within specific boundaries that you understand, but still having boundary demarcation to know like beyond that, we're going to put a full stop to this. Um, but there's a mutual respect there yeah. that comes from those conversations that aren't <laughs> fire, you know, there's not, there's no forge that's mm -hmm. being fired in, right? It's actually just, hey, we're humans. This is how we are. Yeah, and Which, that's maturity that's hard to get to sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, still not there. I'd not love to I am. claim that I'm great at that, um, but that would be a lie. So, well, good. You're being humble. Yeah, so you got the humility um, in there, right? <laughs> that funny because that connects to a certain idea of time management, which is the appropriateness, mm. um, the right time and place to do something. Yeah. Which a lot of time management conversations are about deadlines or how to make sure you get X amount done by Y date. Yeah, it's a veiled conversation about efficiency. Yeah, efficiency. Um, but part of time management is being like, no, there are proper times to do these things and there's proper times to do those things. Mm -hmm. um, and I really, really like what you just said because if you don't acknowledge that there's proper times to work through conflict or proper times to prepare for the inevitable future event of conflict. Right. If we're ignoring those proper times, if we're missing those proper times, it leaves us unprepared. And we, we see this in so many different ways. I mean, we see this in the fact that um, there's a big storm that could be hitting soon. And so there's a lot of talk of like, how do you prepare right. for the conflict that mm -hmm. is this hurricane hitting the coast? Mm -hmm. um, no one's saying, oh, no, no, we just need to ignore and not talk about that possibility and really yeah. only deal with it when it comes up. Because that's when people die. Mm -hmm. um, like people actually die when you ignore the conversations about conflict prior to it occurring. Like mm -hmm. if you don't talk about health risks or health complications that could happen in the future and start preparing them now when you're healthy, like mm -hmm. you get to the point where you're having with a talk with your doctor about how long you have to live yeah. in, in the worst cases. No, so we see that in so many different ways. Um, and so if interpersonally we refuse to acknowledge that that's a truth that just covers all the types of conflicts that we deal with, mm -hmm. um, then we will find ourselves ignoring the times that we actually can have productive conversations about conflict when it's not occurring. So mm -hmm. it's way depressurized. 
And then we'll just find ourselves in those pressure points of now conflicts occurring and just everything's blowing up like a fireworks that I just dropped my cigarette in. Mm-hmm. No, hundred percent. Gosh. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, hopefully, which is why is, we'd have this conversation because right now Gareth and I are just totally on the same page. We are not <laughs> hating on each other. Um, we have not had any major disagreements recently. And so tomorrow when we just start popping off at each other, uh, because, uh, you know, he thinks art history is not valid. <laughs> then we can actually come back and listen to this conversation and remind ourselves of what we told ourselves and other people and well, to be fair, be held to it. If that's going to happen, it'll happen in two days. That's so. true. <laughs> so we might have a bit of an extra day. <laughs> yeah, we'll take tomorrow off. But no, uh, and also, I mean, like, you know, we, we've had people comment before. Um, they're like, hey, uh, you guys all sound like you just really kind of agree with everything. And I don't think the three of us agree. I don't think we we couldn't draw you the exact same picture of what we what we believe about all these topics. But I think what we do agree on is that there is like a mutual respect, absolutely, um, that bases all of this because uh, conflict will come up. I mean, there's plenty of conversations that we've all had offline oh, yeah. that we don't agree with, yeah. Or you know, we have different viewpoints, or we're seeing the situation from a different angle. Yeah. Um, all that's fine, but uh, so please hear all of the stuff we've talked about. Not as a like a directive, not as a you know a doctor talking to a patient, but actually as kind of an empathetic thing. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is this is literally what we what we do is how we try to like embody mm-hmm. these ideas in our daily lives and what we do as educators, as trainers, as uh, parents, as spouses, friends. as members of communities, as friends, as people who you know try to keep a nonprofit art space afloat. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's what, it's, it's what we do. So please hear this. It's a very real situation of, um, we don't have it all together, but mm-hmm. we can humbly offer some things yeah. to you. Um, and, um, just a last note, you know, we haven't talked a lot about how this maybe directly applies to an art practice mm. or a professional, um, artist or designer. Um, but there, that gets back to sort of a shared ontology. You mm-hmm. know, every artist, every designer is a human. Um, living amongst humans, hopefully. Um, And so even though maybe in this conversation we didn't dwell on particular applications, um, I I trust that anyone who's listening can look at their own life and maybe specific relationships that they have that relates to their art practice, their design practice, Mm -hmm. and any of their other relationships. And you'll see, like... If there is anything that Gareth and I have said that is useful or applicable, yeah. you'll see where it can fit in. Because yes. art is something humans do. Training is something humans do. Teaching is something humans do. Yeah. And so if we're being it's a human there. while we're trying to do those things, um, and you know, we are humans, whether or not we'd like to be or not, mm-hmm. we are, um, then it's gonna conflict will occur and the ways to help manage through conflict will hopefully be available. Yes, a hundred percent. And because we do assume our shared humanity, that is how we can say at the end of every single one of these episodes, we do love you. We do appreciate you being such a fantastic audience. We will catch you next time. Peace. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.